Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah Keener here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and I want to personally say that we are so grateful here at South Bend City Church that you're a part of our community. Today, we're going to return to a conversation we began back at the beginning of South Bend City Church, wrestling the tension of an ancient faith in a modern world. Before we get there, though, Jason's going to give us some calendar happenings and some updates in the life of our community. So let's join in with the rest of our community now. Hey, good morning. In the spirit of that song, uh, we thought we'd take a moment to pray because that song uh, calls us to an awareness of the way that we belong to each other in this room and around the world. And we thought it'd be more than fitting that we take a minute to pray for those who are suffering in Turkey and Syria in the wake of that um, awful natural disaster. And so if you want, uh, just join me for a moment in this prayer. Loving God, we pray for those brothers and sisters in the human family over in Turkey and Syria who are suffering in the wake of this devastating earthquake. We pray that you would nourish them with your love in their spirits. That even as the world breaks all around them, that you would sustain them in heart and soul and body. That you would bring out the very best in them as they walk through such a difficult time. We pray that your love would meet them in tangible and material ways that whatever needs to happen in government structures and nonprofits and in the global channel of aid would happen, that they would find that the needs of their bodies are met in this moment. We pray for ourselves as we continue to discern how to show up in different times for different tragedies. And we want to open our hearts to new visions and convictions about how it is that we do that, whether it's for those suffering in Turkey or in Syria or elsewhere or right here at home. Uh, we lament this moment, God, but we ask for your love to meet it. And we pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen. amen. Thank you for joining me in that prayer. Uh, hey, before we get into a teaching today, uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about like, where we're at in the calendar and what's coming right around the corner. Uh, so first of all, as far as where we're at on the calendar, it's February, which is Black History Month. Yeah, this is good news. Um, and a few ways that we are trying to honor this as a church, we're specifically this year thinking about black history right here in South Bend. And we know that right here in South Bend to talk about black history is to talk both about uh, ways that this city has been built uh, in unfair ways. Uh, and we're trying to understand that story and the way that it's marginalized uh, people of color right here in our city. It's also the case that to study and celebrate black history is to pay attention to the ingenuity, the creativity, the, the particular genius that has met the world in black history right here in South Bend. And so the way that we're doing that is twofold. One, we're reading a book called Better Homes of South Bend, uh, particularly important for a church that meets on the floor of Studebaker's factory. This room that you're sitting in was built in the 1940s. Which means in 1950, when the story begins that we're reading about in that book, about black families who worked for Studebaker who decided they wanted to work together to ensure fair housing for themselves, some of them literally worked on the floor that you're sitting on right now. So it seems quite pertinent that we would read this story. We've also heard from some of you about a discussion group and whether we would do something like that. The answer is absolutely, as soon as you do it. <laughs> One thing about South and City Church, we try to remind you on a regular basis that much of our life together is what you do. Uh, one way that we facilitate that is with the Southland City Church Collective on Facebook. Throughout our years together, that's been a Facebook group space where any member of the church has been able to say, hey, let's get together and talk about this, study this, explore this, do this. And that's a great chance if you want to jump in there and convene some friends here in this church, maybe some new friends, to get together around that book. We encourage you to do so. Uh, the other exercise for Black History this month, uh, you'll find this on our website, is a link to a tour that's been provided. Um, you can actually like, drive around with the map and visit actual sites right here in the city of South Bend that are uh, significant in black history right here in our city. Uh, again, head to the collective, see if some friends want a caravan and do that together maybe on a Sunday afternoon after church. 
Uh, we'd love for you to take part in that. The other thing that we're adding to the resource list this week, uh, Zach Gillis and I, the one, the only, the inimitable Zach Gillis, and I were um, having lunch a few weeks ago talking about Black History Month. And in our conversation, uh, we began talking about, Zach began sharing with me some things that as he was talking, I was thinking, this should not stay just between me and Zach. This is a conversation that I think would be great for our whole church. And so we turned on a couple of microphones last week, and we tried to record a version of that conversation for all of you. And so that'll come out on Tuesday. Highly encourage you to check that out as we continue to take that seriously this month. Uh, right around the corner is a turning of the page in the church calendar. This is the sort of sacred way of marking time that Christians have followed through most of our history. Uh, you call it the liturgical year, perhaps. And what I'm talking about uh, around the corner is Lent. Uh, Lent is a time of sacred preparation as we make our way toward Holy Week and Easter. And traditionally, the way that you sort of enter the season of Lent is with Ash Wednesday. And we will be gathering on Ash Wednesday here, February 22nd. That's Wednesday night at 7 p.m. It's a brief gathering of about 45 minutes. Um, there's something really profound about entering this season and receiving a cross of ash on your forehead and having somebody say to you with love and kindness and with not an ounce of shame, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. And there's something kind of humanizing about embracing that truth of our existence and letting that be the frame with which we enter the Lenten season. So we'll do that on Wednesday, February 2nd, 7 p.m. We'd love to see you here. Uh, there won't be kids ministry or child care during that evening. However, I hope you know that kids are always welcome to be right here with us in the gathering. Uh, the other thing that, that features during Lent that I want to let you know about right now is that we're collecting stories from you uh, to help us do some of the teaching during that season. Um, one way of thinking about Lent is that Jesus didn't just die so that we don't have to. Jesus died to show us how to. And that dying and letting go is part of the pattern of following Jesus and being alive with God in the world, right? And if you've been human for even just a moment, you know there are times when we hold on to things that are no longer alive and it's time to let them go, but it can feel like a dying to do so. And sometimes we fight that for a very long time. And yet I think most of us have at least one story in our life where we can point to the mystery that's revealed in Christ, which is that often it's on the other side of dying that something new is made alive, right? So if you have a story like that, it could, be, um, it could seem sort of small and contained or it might be a big part of your life, but if you have a story about something that you've had to let go of or something that's died and then that you found something kind of new on the other side of that, some new life rising up in you or around you, we'd love to hear that story. You can just write it out in an email. Email info at southlandcitychurch.com. Use the subject line, letting go stories. I do want to know, if you do that, um, please be aware that we might use that in a public setting. We won't attach your name to it, but what you write in the body of that story, it might show up on social media or in a gathering here. So just, just know that as you're sharing those stories with us. But we think you all should do some of the preaching around here. And so this is one of the ways that we're going to pull some of those stories in. Sound good? Uh, one more thing, not related to Lent, uh, as we sort of come out of COVID and we see so many new faces here at South and City Church, we're trying to get better at really welcoming you, not just on a Sunday morning, but more deeply into relationship and our life together. And one of the ways that we're doing that is with a new to SBCC table. Uh, we've done this in the past. And what's interesting is they keep filling up. Like you all are really taking advantage of this, which we love. We put a capacity limit on these so that they remain uh, relational enough and intimate enough that you can really get connected. Our next one is coming up in two ways. So you could join an in-person new to SBCC table on Sunday, March 5th. Myself and other team members will be there. We'll do some storytelling all around the table, not just so that you can get to know us, but so that we can get to know you a little bit. Uh, Sunday, March 5th, or right after this 11 a.m. gathering, we'll be right up there in the mezzanine. We're also offering a digital version online on Monday, March 6th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That'll be a Zoom group. Uh, we're doing that both for local members who find it easier to show up online than in person on a Monday night, and knowing that we've got some long-distance members who want to be a part of that. Uh, for either of these, if you want to learn more or take advantage of it, just head to the website, go to What's Happening, find the new to SBCC table link, and you'll see how you can RSVP, and we'd love to see you there. All right, that's all the info. Good? Cool. Let's, let's keep going. Uh, big, big night tonight in American culture. Big deal. Something going on. Uh, I thought I would take a poll and see where you're all at on who you're rooting for. So if you would, please make some noise if you are rooting for football tonight. Okay. And now make some noise if you're rooting for Rihanna tonight. <laughs> I'm going to way over-interpret what just happened there as far as my understanding of Sopin City Church and who comes to the 11th. That's great. All right, seriously, who's rooting for the Chiefs tonight? 
All right, who's rooting for the Eagles? Yes! <laughs> we got a shirt on and everything. Tammy Sue is all over it. Who's just rooting for some good food that you don't have any excuse to eat besides football? There it is. Awesome. A uh, side note, our students are going to be hanging out during the Super Bowl tonight right here. If you want to learn more, uh, just uh, talk to one of us on the team because I actually don't know what else to say about that right now. But I know our students are hanging out here tonight for the Super Bowl. That's middle school and high school. Uh, with the Super Bowl coming up, I've been paying attention uh, to one of the ad campaigns that's going to be featured tonight. Forgive me, I've got that whole like scratchy throat. Thing. It's not COVID, I've tested, but I've got that whole scratchy throat thing going on here. Um, it's the Super Bowl. Uh, advertising is a really big deal at the Super Bowl. One of the ads that's going to air tonight has, has, is part of a campaign that's been rolled out for the last few months. It's showed up uh, on billboards, on social media, TV, and then tonight on the Super Bowl. Uh, the campaign I'm talking about is He Gets Us. Anybody seen this? Yeah, so this is sort of an evangelistic campaign. It's talking about Jesus. And the heart of it is to say, like, he, he gets us. He understands us. He is identified with our experiences. And, and I'm curious about this, especially knowing that it's going to be in one of these very, 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 very expensive ad spots tonight. And in the last couple of weeks, I did some digging around on it. I've been curious about it. There's a lot of chatter about this particular ad campaign. There's a lot of opinions and feelings about the content of the campaign and who's behind it and the money that's behind it and the motivations that are behind it. And I've just been curious to observe all of that. And there's a lot going on in the argument about this campaign. But if you read these articles and these op-eds and these social media posts of people who are talking about how they feel about this campaign and what's behind it, it struck me that um, in some ways this particular fight about this particular ad campaign in some ways, it's the fight we're always having about everything. And I'll, I'll work this out slowly here while we're talking today about what I mean by that. Have you ever, like, been, like, I don't know if it's in your marriage or, like, a romantic relationship or in your family of origin or at work? Have you ever, like, been having a fight about something? And you know, even as you're having the fight, that the fight's not about that fight? <laughs> Come on. I don't mind telling you this story. At the 9 a.m., my parents were both here, and my mom said, yes! <laughs> Wait. And then I looked up and my mom was sitting over there and my dad was sitting over there at the other end of another row. And I thought, oh no, I'm sure they're fine. But there's that thing, right, where particular fights are sometimes about the bigger fight that we're always having, the, the bigger issues that we're always wrestling through, but they show up in the details. And uh, one of the ways I was sort of interpreting the fight around this ad campaign comes back to the bigger fight or the bigger wrestling match that I, and I think we're, we're often having about what it is to be a person of faith or a community of faith in the modern world. Like, like what is it to be a person of faith, to have faith, to live by faith in the modern world? What, what is it to believe things and to live by those beliefs as a person? Also, what is it to be a church? Like, like at the heart of it, what is the church here doing in the world? Like, like, really, like, what are we here for and how would we evaluate whether we or some other community is doing that or not, doing it well or not, doing it faithfully or not? Uh, and I think this particular wrestling match that's been going on forever about what it is to be a person of faith in the world or what it is to be a community of faith, I think you could frame that debate with sort of two primary elements that are in tension with each other. And I want to put these in front of you for a bunch of reasons. One, because this has actually been part of South and City Church's framing philosophy from the very beginning, but you might not have heard it if you haven't been here from the beginning. Two, I want to say, because I, I hope it's helpful to you as a person, because I think it's actually something we are wrestling with all the time, all of us every day. And three, I want to offer it as a framing today, because it's going to create some context for a conversation next week as we apply this framing to a topic that we've not applied it to before. So that's why we're doing this work. Hopefully it'll help you know where we're coming from at this church. Hopefully it'll help you in your life. And hopefully it'll set up next week for a new conversation. Uh, these two things that I'm talking about, these two things that seem intention, these, these two sort of elements that we are always wrestling with. The first one, I'm going to put a symbol on the screen as a sort of reminder of what we're talking about. Let me put this up here. Uh, anybody recognize the symbol? Yeah, this is called a triquetra. That's the technical word for this icon. Uh, it's Trinitarian in nature. Uh, you see you've got the kind of triangle, the three-pointed triangle, and then you've got the circle sort of binding it all together. Uh, this is an image that comes from Celtic culture. My understanding is it actually predates Christian use, but that when Christianity came uh, to Ireland or that part of the world, they sort of saw in it something representative of the story that they were telling about God who is three in one. The triangle representing sort of father, son, and spirit, and the circle sort of unifying all of it. Uh, 
a symbolic way of saying that we believe that at the heart of reality there is a, a community of love called God. And somehow that community of love is both three and one. I put it up there, though, not like specifically to be Trinitarian today, but more just as a general uh, symbolic representation of tradition, of the faith that we have inherited, which is to say that to be a person of faith or to be a church is to receive something that's been handed down to us, right? It's to believe that somehow God has spoken in history and, and spoken through what God has done in history and that, that we've inherited that story and that from that story we gain a, like a whole worldview, a whole way of being in the world. Uh, this past year, actually right now we're in the middle of it still, we've been teaching the Apostles' Creed, that, that, that ancient way of, of narrating the story. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the life everlasting, etc. Right? That's, a, that's an inherited interpretation of the truth that we've received about God and about ourselves, right? Uh, the Bible, the Bible's an old book. Like the last pages written in that book were written something like 2,000 years ago. And for 2,000 years, Christians and people of faith have been saying like, this is what we've inherited, what we've received, right? So like, like to, be, to be a Christian in any sense, I think, is to say like we've inherited or received this faith. We don't just make it up from scratch. We don't just sort of innovate it or come out of the gate with whatever it is we're thinking today, right? We, We've inherited this from the past. Call this rooted faith. But that's not the only thing that we're dealing with, right? We, we don't just live in a vacuum having inherited this thing from thousands of years ago. I'm going to put another triangle on the screen here. Anybody know what that is? Delta. A delta. That's right. Yeah. Uh, a delta, you, you might recognize it from a misspent youth on a college campus at a fraternity. I don't know. Um, or maybe you're, you know, a fan of the airline. But uh, the, the, the triangle there, the Greek symbol delta, the reason I put it up here is in math equations, it's used to represent change. So if you're talking to, like, science people or even, like, finance people, they'll talk about the delta in a variable, and they just mean the change, how, how much change has happened in this variable, right? And I put that up here, too, because, like, any period of time involves some kinds of change, right? There, there's technological change, there's cultural change, there's economic change, there's philosophical change. I mean, that's always going on in the world at large, and it's always going on in your life. Things are changing in your life. You are changing. Your relationships are changing, right? Things are on the move in the world. But also, I think you can make the case that we are living at a time of accelerated change. Now, I can't prove it to you, and I don't know what it felt like to live in other periods of time, but there's a historian named Phyllis Tickle who makes this case, and she's smarter than me, and I like what she says, so I'm going to trust her on this. And Tickle is both a historian and a theologian. She passed away just recently, but she wrote a book about this, and she argues that roughly every 500 years, our species has gone through more dramatic change for a period of about 100 years. So you have maybe 400 years of incremental change, and then about 100 years of really dramatic change, and that pattern roughly continues. And whether you agree with her or not, you can observe the larger sort of frame of what she's saying. Go back 500 years. A lot of us are somewhat familiar with the fact that roughly 500 years ago, the Reformation happened. So within Christendom, the Reformation is a tectonic change. It's not an incremental change. And Tickle says that whether it's that change or any other of those 500-year moments of change, there's a couple of things always going on. One, we're always asking, wait, where is the authority? Because when questions of authority are settled, things feel less disruptive. Now, whether you agree with the authority or you like the authority, whether the authority is good or not is a separate question. But when a whole community of people agree on where the authority is, that tends to create a certain kind of social order. Whether it's good or bad, it creates order, right? Well, in these, in these periods of really dramatic shifting and changing, disruption, all of a sudden, a lot of people are like, wait, we're not sure where the authority is right now of who to trust or what to trust or what to appeal to when we're arguing about what kind of world we want to live in and what kind of people we want to be. Right? So 500 years ago, in Christendom, authority, you, you could sort of roughly say, is located in the hierarchy of the church, in the, the men who occupy the hierarchy of that church. Right? And then one thing that happens during the Reformation is Luther basically says, no, I think the authority for us is located in Scripture, not the men at the hierarchy of the church. Right? Well, that's pretty disruptive. That's a very different claim about where we appeal to for authority, what we appeal to to make our decisions. Right? The other thing that, that Tickle says is not only do we ask where's the authority during these periods of dramatic change, she says technology is usually involved in these periods of disruption, some kind of new technology. So in the period 500 years ago, anybody know what big technology was, was coming on the scene? 
Printing press, that's right. Yeah, Gutenberg's printing press. And you can quickly imagine how Luther is saying this, the Bible, the, the printed book that contains within it the word of God for us is the authority, how that merges with technology, with the printing press to fuel this dramatic change in the world, right? Super disruptive. Uh, where is the authority and new technology? And I think you can interpret the moment that we're living in through a similar lens. One, we, we, we are living with less consensus than we have in a very long time about where the authority is, morally, uh, socially. Like, what should we appeal to to decide who's right and who's wrong? We're living at a time of a lot of disruption around questions of authority, right? And we're living at a time of like, very obvious, rampant change in technology. So you have the advent of personal computers, and then the internet, and then AI, right? The computer thing's pretty basic. Let's talk about the internet for a moment. The internet connects us in beautiful and very disruptive ways. I think it's easy to underestimate what a different world we're living in with the internet. Think of it simply like this. Like, before the advent of the internet on our phones and personal computers, before like YouTube in every pocket, you could pretty much live your entire life really only hearing like one major religious worldview, and it was usually articulated from whatever guy was standing in the pulpit, right? So you spend your whole life, generations on end, you know, showing up for one pulpit, hearing from one point of view about what Christianity is or what reality is or what God is, right? And then all of a sudden the internet comes along, and instead of spending your entire life in one lane like that, we got 12-year-olds who can go online and watch YouTube videos from lecturers speaking from like Sufi mysticism, right, or Buddhism, or like Presbyterians, <laughs> right? I don't know why I'm picking on them today. It's just a stand-in for the fact that you can hear from a lot of different perspectives now in a way that's never been the case before, right? I think that's more disruptive than we realized. A lot of us have not inherited the tools of discernment. The, the muscles of discernment were not built in our forbearing generations in a way that we need them right now, right? If you go to a restaurant and they only serve one thing, you don't need to have any idea of how you would pick from a menu, right? But if all of a sudden you go to the restaurant and it's a 73-page menu, you're kind of like dumbfounded for a moment about how would I even work my way through this, right? I think that's kind of going on at an ideological, philosophical, moral, religious level in a way that hasn't happened in previous generations unless, unless you lived in particular places in the world where everything was colliding. But it's not just uh, computers and the internet. Uh, we also have artificial intelligence coming on the scene in a way that I think is highly disruptive. By the way, I'm not judging these dynamics, I'm just observing them, right? This is just real, right? Um, anybody know what ChatGPT is? Yeah, if you've seen a lot of noise just in the last like, month or two about AI, ChatGPT is an AI engine that was built by some scientists, and they've made it available for public use. So you can go ask ChatGPT, this artificial intelligence, questions like, hey, ChatGPT, do this for me, or write this up for me, or respond to this question. And there are times when its responses are startlingly strong, and they seem very human. If you haven't tried this, it can be a little bit jarring to see a computer come up with such a human-sounding response. Uh, I forget which school it is. Uh, there's at least two studies that I've seen so far of university professors who engineered an experiment where they were able to um, get ChatGPT to write an essay response to a long-form question on a college exam, and then that, that was folded into their students' responses in a blind test so that the professors didn't know the difference between responses written by their actual students and responses written by ChatGPT. And at least in one of these studies at a business school, and I think it was an Ivy League business school, ChatGPT did as well or better than most of the students. That's pretty disruptive. Uh, Kevin Kelly, who's a technology futurist and the founder of Wired Magazine, also a Christian himself, was actually here on this stage with us just a few years ago during Idea Week for Notre Dame, and he and I were having a conversation about the future of spirituality and technology. And Kevin's a fairly credible tech futurist, and Kevin said here, and he said it elsewhere, he says AI is going to disrupt us um, morally, politically, economically, philosophically, religiously, and socially in ways that we are not prepared for. And he said Christians are going to be the most disrupted by it. Now remember, Kevin Keller is a Christian himself. But he said the reason I think Christians are going to be the most disrupted by it is we've been saying from the beginning that to be human is unique in a theological way, that we are bearers of the divine image. And the way Kevin frames the question is, what are you going to do when we, create, we as bearers of the, of the divine image, create something in our image, and then it asks us, am I also a bearer of the image of God? 
So these are really big, challenging questions that we're facing uh, in the world right now. There's a lot of change going on. Now let me set these two symbols side by side, because this helps me kind of think about what we're facing, um, both individually in the world and as a church. On the left there, you've got the triquetra representing the rooted faith, this sort of worldview that we inherit. And on the right, you've got the Greek delta representing change. And when you set them side by side, you can feel the tension between them, can't you? And we've been living with the tension between these in a million ways, every one of us, whether you've been a part of South and City Church or not, right? Uh, it strikes me there's a few ways that you can navigate the tension between, on the one hand, what you've inherited or received, and on the other, the world that's changing right now and all the new questions that it's raising. One way that you could navigate all of this is basically say whether as an individual or as a church, you could say, on the left there, the rooted faith, that's our business. We're just going to pay attention to that, and we're going to try to not be distracted by the stuff on the right, by the changing world stuff. So just kind of like double down on our core business and not pay too much attention to the other stuff, right? Now, there's a lot of problems with that, I think, but like really that's to kind of live in denial, right? The thing about this is you can build big churches doing this. You can sell lots of books doing this. There's a kind of comforting um, fancy word, like narcotizing, like effect of being like, hey, just, I'm just going to kind of help you avoid all the hard questions that are being raised by the world that we're living in right now, right? I mean, that's a way that you can navigate all this. This, by the way, this is when you go to church on Sunday morning and you, you listen to the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and the sermons that we preach and you walk out at the end of it all and you say, man, that felt really good, but like, are they living in the same world that we're living in all week? Like, have they read any of the headlines? Or have they been to our schools or felt what we're feeling in our neighborhoods? Like, are, are they paying any attention? Because it felt good and it was beautiful, but it seems totally disconnected from everything else going on in the world right now, right? So that, that's one way to navigate this. I would argue you could go further in the same direction to a more militant posture where you double down on the rooted faith stuff. This is what we've inherited or received. And not only do you just ignore the changing world stuff, you actually warn against it. You build up a defensive posture against it. You say it's dangerous out there. Don't ask those questions. Don't pay attention to those conversations. Be really, really careful. Put on the blinders and the earmuffs. Like It's really scary out there, and I'm here to protect you from it by drawing a boundary that prevents you from interacting with any of it. That's when people like me stand on stages like this and tell you, like, don't read those books. Don't ask those questions, right? Uh, now, that, that I think becomes really damaging. But you know what's interesting? The more disruptive the changes are that are happening in the world, the more you're going to see that posture, right? And this, this can be confusing to people sometimes because they'll look at the world on the one hand and it seems it's growing more open or more progressive or more modern. And at the very same time, you will see fundamentalisms growing as a reaction to it. They actually feed off of one another. Here's the other interesting thing. Watch this. The more that I sort of, I use this word in a way that I'm not really comfortable with because it's not quite right, but the more that a kind of conservative fundamentalism grows in reaction to the changes that are happening in the world, watch this, the more the progressive edge of those changes will mirror that fundamentalism in response. And they just kind of feed each other, and they, they get more and more militant on both sides of those stances because it's kind of a negative feedback loop where they just sort of fuel one another. Anybody, does this sound familiar at all? Right? Okay, cool. Okay. So that's another thing that can happen, right? Now, there's, there's a third move that you can make that goes the other direction where you look at the tension between these two, and these are all attempts at resolving the tension, right? Really, and our brains don't like tension. We just prefer to resolve them. So another move that you can make is you can look at the left, the rooted faith, the thought of what we've inherited, the worldview that came before us, right? And you can just say, oh, man, that's just kind of unfortunate and antiquated. Maybe it's even kind of embarrassing. And really, you could just say, shouldn't we just kind of leave all that behind and kind of live with the moment that we're at right now, right? Now, I get that because it's a way of resolving the tension, but let me just observe that to say that is to say that we assume that whatever the current thinking is on any given question, it must always be the best thinking. But I just don't think that's actually true. I mean, sometimes it might be true, but to assume it's always true doesn't seem quite right to me, right? Uh, to do this is to assume that wherever the prevailing winds are blowing, we should just set our sail to those winds and see where it takes us. I'm not sure that's quite right. Uh, so I don't, I don't really like any of these postures as a way of dealing with this tension between what we've received and where we live right now. And one reason I don't like it is because actually in Scripture, I see something else going on. I, I actually think there's, there's a whole different way of interacting with all of this that's, I'm going to argue today, I think it's most faithful, most biblical, and I think it's actually the only real way of moving forward. And to make this case, I want to take you to the book of Acts chapter 15. 
So uh, if you know your New Testament, you might already know this, but in the, in the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the biographies of Jesus' actual life and death and resurrection, right? And then a lot of the rest of the New Testament is letters written to churches. But between all of that, we have the book of Acts, which is this one beautiful story of the church in its early days. Between uh, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and everything that comes after, we have the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, you watch the early followers of Jesus wrestling with a challenge that I think looks an awful lot like what I've just described to you. So the context for them is that the early followers of Jesus are all Jewish, as Jesus is Jewish. But then over time, the movement sort of breaks out of that lane and begins to include Gentiles. And so you have both Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus. Now, for the earliest followers of Jesus, all of the categories that they had already received seemed to leave them thinking that, well, what God does is God shows up among God's people, and God's people are the Jewish people, and Jesus was Jewish, and this is a Jewish movement. And while it's beautiful and it's filled with grace, it doesn't change the fact that for us to be a part of God's people is to be Jewish. Like, they don't have any reason to revise this yet. And the Gentiles aren't Jewish. And the way that you know that the Gentiles aren't Jewish is they don't live up to the the law of Moses, to the Jewish way of being with God and with one another in the world. And one of the preeminent issues at stake in whether you're Jewish or not is whether the men are circumcised. So you've got uh, Jewish circumcised Christians who feel like they're in the flow, right? And God is with them and they're part of God's people. And the Jesus thing has been a new revelation in the flow of that, but it keeps them going in the same direction. And then you have Gentile believers in Jesus who aren't circumcised, which means they just flat out aren't a part of the people of God according to the old categories, right? Now, I don't, I don't know if this sounds like a fraught debate to you or if it sounds kind of trivial, but at a minimum, just try to take my word when I tell you, like, this is um, as high stakes as you can get. For these ancient Jewish followers of Jesus, it's the law of Moses that makes it really clear. You are not a part of God's people. You are not a part of what God is doing unless you're one of God's people. And God's people are Jewish and they are circumcised. That's just how it goes, right? By the way, if you think that it's peculiar to Jewish people that they think God is like their God and you have to be a part of their people, you haven't read history. It's every group that does that, right? Anyway, so this is the conundrum that the church is wrestling with in the book of Acts. And then we turn to chapter 15. It sort of lays out the summary here. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. You're not in with God and God's people, right? Next slide. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them because they don't see it that way. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So here in Acts 15, you have, a, you have a snapshot of like a real-time deliberation going on about this really big question. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved, to be part of the people of God? Now before I go any further into what happens here, let me just pose this question. When the book of Acts tells this story, why does it tell us this story? Do we think the book of Acts told us this story about them deliberating what to do with the tension between the faith as received through Moses and what what seemed to be happening right now? Are we given that story simply because they did work for us that we should never have to do for ourselves? Or are we given the story of them doing this work because the text expects that we're going to have to do this work too? Like, are we just given the minutes on the meeting so we can inspect them? Or are we given um, a sort of insider view to their process of discernment? Are we given this text? Is this in our scriptures because we're going to have to have some of the same deliberations in our era of life and faith? And my theory is the latter, that that's actually why we're given these stories, that that's what we're here to do. Uh, We go on in the story, Acts 15. They have their deliberation, and they basically, after a lot of, like, duking it out, believe, I think what God's doing is actually bigger than the categories that we used to have for God. And the fact that the Spirit is showing up among the Gentiles, even though they're not circumcised, means we need to keep up with the Holy Spirit and include them too. And so they make this decision, and then the apostles and elders with the whole church decide to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers, and with them they sent the following letter. Next slide. Next slide. There we go. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Next slide. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. 
So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. Now, here's the line. Watch this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Next slide. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Did you catch the audacity of what just happened? <laughs> these few Jewish believers got together in Jerusalem and said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit, and uh, it seems good to us. Seems good. <laughs> to overthrow the law of Moses? To create a whole new category of belonging based on what we see God already doing. Good to the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit seems to already be doing this. The Holy Spirit seems to already be at work in their lives, showing up, manifesting herself in their lives. And it seems good for us to try to keep up with that. It seems good. It seems right. It seems beautiful. It seems true. It seems worthwhile. It seems like it's doing good things in the world for us to keep up with this. And so they say, I think we should go along with that. Guys, that's in the book of Acts. That's in the document that's given to the church for all time's sake to say this is what it means to be a church. And I just keep coming back to this. I don't think we were given that text just because they did all the work for us. I think we were given that text because we might find ourselves in similar situations where we have some discerning work to do too. I honestly, I think the only way to describe a faithful posture for a person or a church is to say that we are going to live in the tension between those two things I had charted on the, on the screen. That we're going to double down on the faith that we've inherited. We believe it's good news. We didn't make this thing up. It's, it's been given to us by generations of faithful people, and God's been at work through all of us. We're going to receive that and try to figure out what it means to honor it. And we're going to set that in conversation with the world that we're living in right now. And we're going to be brave enough to do some discerning work on our own. To say, like, we, we also, I say on our own, I'll say more in a minute because that's not quite right. But to, like, do some of this discerning work together here, right? Uh, this, for example, is why the series that we're doing on the Apostles' Creed, we've called it Old Creed, New World. We're trying, like literally every week as we teach the creed, we've been trying to work out this particular view of faith, that we, we receive and inherit the faith that's been given to us, and we set it in conversation with the world that we're living in right now, and we ask new questions, and we remain open to the fact that there might be new chapters being written as we do that discernment. Um, I want to give you a, a, a kind of more practical, tactical example of where this is showing up in the life of South and City Church right now. Uh, you might have noticed this, you might not. Uh, but let me give you this example, and then I'll come back to some of the larger ideas that we're talking about. But the other really kind of tactical, practical example has to do with how we think of like the nature of, of this community in terms of who's a part of it and where they are. So a little background. In 2016, when we started South and City Church, we came out of the gate convinced that we wanted to put pretty much everything we had into an actual flesh and blood physical presence community. So this meant that besides basically the podcast, which is the one thing that we kind of put out there in the world, pretty much everything else we did, we said, well, like, we really want to just put everything we've got into what happens when we are physically together in person. Um, you may not know or care about this, but like church planting is a whole industrial complex, and there's playbooks and strategies that are run by church planters, and often early in that strategy is to have as much web presence as possible. So you... You kick off like a live stream for Sunday morning services before you even have Sunday morning services. You just kind of build out all this digital infrastructure. And there's reasons for that that are good, and there's reasons for that that, that aren't good, but whatever. That's, that's the playbook, and we consciously rejected that playbook. And we felt that we would rather put everything we had into what happens when we physically gather together. And then the pandemic, yes. <laughs> so when the pandemic hit, I don't know if you know this, we literally didn't own a camera which is almost like malpractice in modern church world. Like, literally, we didn't. We, we actually found a, a small grant. I say we. I think Matt found a small grant for us to buy a camera. Uh, but we were really on our heels when it comes to digital presence because up until that point, we had very consciously decided that we were going to invest almost every single thing we had in physical presence rather than digital. Well, then obviously the pandemic comes along. And in the early days of the pandemic, like you, we probably weren't asking big questions about the future. We were asking about this moment that we were living in right now. So you do what you should do to be faithful in a moment with changing circumstances. But now we've found ourselves on the other side, largely. I mean, I know COVID is still here, but obviously we're kind of rebuilding our lives and our communities together on the other side of COVID. And our team sat together for a long day of discernment back in the fall. And we just asked ourselves, is that earlier commitment still the right commitment for us? 
Like, is it fair to say that South and City Church, like everything we've got, we're going to put into just like what happens when we are physically in person with one another? And we considered a couple of uh, factors. One thing we considered is that um, even though we hopefully are through the worst phases of the pandemic, we are still living in a kind of different reality when it comes to sickness and disease than the one that we were living in before. Um, so that's very real. Uh, even right now today as I speak to you, I know that there are people who maybe wish they could be here this Sunday morning, but they're not here either because of their own illness or because they've been near illness and they want to be safe for the community. Uh, on top of that, the, the ways that a lot of us are rebuilding our lives just look different than they did beforehand, right? Uh, we've noticed that even local people seem sometimes better served by digital spaces. Um, I would have said earlier, my own sort of ignorant assumption is that digital is for long-distance people who aren't in the region, and physical is for in, in people right here, but that's clearly not the case. Uh, we did child dedication uh, last fall, and Karen Grant, our kids' ministry director, held some meetings for parents to prepare for that. We had an in-person meeting and a Zoom meeting. And I, from what I understand, the Zoom meeting was way better attended because it just tends to work with life in the world that we are living in right now, right? Um, another thing that's happened from the beginning but that keeps growing is we keep hearing from people in other places who don't have a spiritual home. And South and City Church is the closest thing they've found to a spiritual home. Now, I can be an idealist and a stickler for principles and say, yeah, but a digital community is not the same thing. And yeah, it's not, we know that, right? But it doesn't mean it's not a community. And I think part of what's happened in the last few years is that we as a whole species have strengthened some of our muscles around digital connection. We've realized that more of our connection life might happen through digital channels, right? We keep hearing from people and our hope would be that you would find a, like a full-on flesh and blood church wherever you are, where you're able to show up true and authentic and live your life in faith. That, that would be the dream, right? But the fact is, that isn't always the case. And so we find we have a lot of um, people who find themselves as outsiders and exiles from spiritual community in other places, and they would say, Stop and City Church is my church. And I mean they are in, you all. Like, it would surprise you sometimes, I think. Um, if I could take you through the donor list, the number of people who give regularly and financially, and I don't mean like 10 bucks here and there, I mean like people who make this possible at a really significant level. The number of them who've never been to our church once in person, they live in other states, and as far as I know, they'll never come here. They're giving to the Tribune Project to help build the building where we're gonna have a physical home and they pay for our general fund. It's just staggering, but they're all in, you know? I get pictures texted to me sometimes or emailed from people in, like from the West Coast to the East Coast and even the UK. And they have uh, these little mantra cards, which are these little portable versions of the mantras, like framed in their office cubicle or in their home. And it's their way of saying, I think, hey, this is my family. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of this. And what our team felt as we sat around that conversation of discernment back in the fall was, I think it's time to update our model of how we think about South and City Church just a little bit. To say that, hey, we are a hybrid church whether we designed it that way or not, whether we intended it or not. We are, uh, and I mean hybrid in two ways. First of all, we are local and long distance. So many of the people who consider South and City Church their family are in the region. They have a local connection, right? And many don't. Uh, people from the East Coast to the West Coast, UK and elsewhere who would say, this is my church. And we want to be more responsive to that sense of belonging for them. So that's one way we're hybrid. We're local and we're long distance. Another way that we're hybrid is we're in-person and we're digital. And those two binaries I just described, they don't always overlap. Because like I just said, sometimes it's local people who benefit from digital connection because of the way that your life is working right now, right? So I tell you that because you're going to see that um, us kind of working that out in real time. We don't entirely know what it looks like. We started with a commitment to understanding ourselves as a slightly different paradigm than we did before. And then we're going to work it out together. We're going to experiment. We're going to try to find ways that are faithful to who we are to honor the fact that Southland City Church is, is a hybrid church. That's, that's what's flourishing right now. That seems to be what God is doing and how we can serve in the world at large. Uh, I also tell you that because this is a great chance to collaborate. I'm speaking specifically now to all of you who are in some way gifted with skills and experiences that serve like digital communications. We would love to collaborate with you. Maybe you're a copywriter or a videographer or a photographer or you have expertise in social media. Uh, as we try to take more seriously hybrid church, we need to learn from you and work with you to build that out together. So if you're one of those kinds of creators, we are calling you out right now. Uh, if you want to just head to the volunteer link on our website, you'll see an option to let us know that that's the thing that you're interested in. And we would love to work with you over the next few weeks and months as we try to live up to being a hybrid church. Now, when I say that, when I say hybrid church, 
I do want to make sure you don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we're diluting our emphasis on South Bend. So I want to be really clear about that. We're still South Bend City Church. This is the center of our mission and calling. This is the place where we are most called to love and show up. And we're not trying to like somehow sneak something in here that takes us away from that commitment. Um, you know the two triangles I showed you? Well, those two triangles are part of why our logo is designed the way it is. But there's one more reason. This is the logo right here. It's on the coffee cup. You should get one, by the way. They're over there for free. Take one home. There's one more element on the coffee cup. Let me show you the map of South Bend. I don't know if you know that this is what downtown South Bend looks like. Do you all know that South Bend is called South Bend because it's the South Bend of the St. Joe River? Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a Midwest name. I'm like, wah, wah. Yeah, it's South Bend because it's the South Bend of the river. Um, but the reason our logo, uh, next slide, the reason our logo has that blue line in it is that's exactly what the river looks like downtown. And it's also a reminder that everything we say about what we're called to do and how we follow Jesus, that if we're going to live that out anywhere, we're going to live it out here in South Bend. So I, I don't want to confuse you. Like, we're not trying to dilute that sense of particularity that our love is going to show up right here and, and especially right here in South Bend. It's just as we do that, we're also going to walk with this more complex sort of church life that we've stumbled into in the last couple of years. Now, I'm almost done, but one more move, and this sets up next week. So whether it's those um, hybrid church members from all over the country or Europe or wherever else they are who find themselves as outsiders or exiles, or whether it's the Gentiles in the book of Acts, this points to one other takeaway from the, what, what the church was doing all the way back then. Uh, this particular interpretation comes from a New Testament scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson. Um, highly recommend him. In particular, he's written a book called Scripture and Discernment, if you want to check my footnotes and see where I got some of this from. But Johnson works out this model from the book of Acts, saying the people of God are here to be committed to the faith that we've inherited and to work out in real time how it applies in the world that we're living in right now. He says that's the model. But then he says this. He says when God wants to move God's people into a new understanding, he usually does it the way he did it in the book of Acts. Watch this. When God wants to move God's people into a new understanding, he usually does it the way he did it in the book of Acts, which is to say... He starts with the marginalized or the outsiders. He shows up in the lives of the marginalized and the outsiders. The Holy Spirit arrives in the lives of the marginalized or the outsiders. The glory of God expresses itself in the lives of the marginalized or the outsiders. The activity starts with them, and then everybody who's in headquarters, everybody who's at the center of power, everybody who's in the center of things, their job, what it is to be faithful, is to notice it and respond to it and like, get on board with it. So that's what happened in the book of Acts. They're in Jerusalem, headquarters among the Jewish Christians who were the first ones into the movement, right? It's them paying attention to outside Jerusalem, outside the Jewish people where God is showing up with the power of the Spirit among the Gentiles. It's their job at headquarters to notice that and then update their own model of what God is doing based on that. This is why, for example, the whole framework I just gave you, that was the framework that... Uh, undergirded the move that we made in 2018 to clarify our stance on inclusion for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Um, so that, 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 that has already been with us and working on us, and we want to keep working out um, that particular model, right? Uh, next week, we want to take it into slightly new territory, new for us at least as a church. So next week, uh, I'm very excited about this. I think it'll be really good for us. Next week, we're going to do some thinking together about gender. Um, gender is certainly one of the areas where I think a lot of people are feeling the disruptions that are happening in the world at large. Um, we want to do this for a few reasons. One, we've never actually taken the time to specifically um, give love, honor, hospitality, and respect to the experience of our own transgender members right here in this church. Uh, we've never done that, and we don't want that to be a sort of unspoken place where instead we want to explicitly work out and communicate belonging there. Um, two, uh, even though from the beginning of South and City Church, we've always um, held to a view that women and men both belong at every level of leadership, we've never actually talked about it, which uh, somebody else pointed out to me. And so uh, maybe it would be helpful for you to hear that because of some of the wounds that you're carrying or because it hasn't been clear for you here, but that's another reason to talk about gender, uh, because it's been with us, but we haven't named it. Third, and this might be the unexpected move for some of you, um, also, we're living at a time that's developing more and more language to critique toxic masculinity, which is really good. But it's leaving a void where there ought to be a celebration of sacred masculinity. 
Because if we, if we really think that there are sacred versions of these energies that we call gender, right, then we ought to be able to like, name and celebrate the holiness and all of that, right? And so for all of those reasons, next week we're going to do a big think together uh, about gender. And today's teaching was meant to create some context for that. Because what I did today was try to tell you, we've been trying to do this from the beginning. This has been with us from the beginning. It's why it's on the dang logo, right? Um, so far I know of five individuals who have this tattooed on them. If I preach this well, my hope is that we'll be up to 10 by the end of the month. Uh, okay, that's, uh, that's the big thing for today. Um, oh, wait, no, I have one more word. Just one more little thing. It's so important. I said earlier accidentally, I said work it out on our own. I don't mean that. We don't work it out on our own. What did they say? They said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, right? In Genesis 1, the first word of Scripture, before we even get to Imago Dei, before we get there, we read the Spirit of God. She hovered above the waters. It's always the Spirit of God who is drawing out of the raw materials the new creative power, right? There's this sort of, like God has set loose in the world from the beginning of material history, the beginning of the universe. God has set loose these potentials, but they aren't all realized yet. And the, the ongoing creative work is us and the Spirit keeping up and expanding and creating together as we sort of grow up, not just individually, but as a species over all of our history, we kind of grow up together with God and one another. And so like, I want to encourage you, like, I don't know what version of what I showed you today you're facing personally about like, what you inherited and the questions that you're asking right now. Um, everybody has their own version of that story. But wherever you're at in that, between what you inherited and where you're at right now, you're not on your own. Literally every breath you breathe, every time your chest rises within you, you're reminded that, that you've been given the gift of God breathing in you and guiding you. In the New Testament, uh, we read uh, this, these words, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. As if to say, I've not given it all to you yet because you're not ready for it. I'm going to keep working this out with you generation after generation. We're just going to keep working this out together. You're not on your own. You're going to be given what you need when the time is right for it. And so for me, this whole project is an experiment in the Holy Spirit. And that makes it um, beautiful and exhilarating to me to say that whether, we're not going to get all this right. We're going to make some mistakes. I'm sure some of what I've said today is wrong. But like, we're banking on the idea that God is actually with us, guiding us into the future that God wants to create. And we just need to be brave enough to walk with God into it, right? All right, that's all I had to say. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? I wish you um, many greasy, uh, unhealthy foods tonight <laughs> at the Rihanna concert. And then a benediction. Uh, may you know the good news that we've inherited, that Jesus is Lord and that God is with us and that the kingdom of heaven is here and now. As you receive that inheritance, may you trust the presence of the Spirit who is with you as she guides you and me and us into the ever-expanding, ever-more-beautiful world that God wants to build. And may grace and peace be with you. And also with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week. <laughs>